Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 10. Tangent Special Number 1. Biographies, Autobiographies, and Memoirs. And since I've achieved all my goals as president in one term, there was no need for a second. The end. Hmm. Good memoirs. Good, not great. Now, let's look at that old outboard. Soup that baby up, rattle a few windows down in Kennebunkport next May. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Bush. What you doing? Now, don't upset the desk there. Careful, don't want to horse around hey, with... Hey, cool, what does this do? Now, don't you pull that cord, young man. Oh, no. Oops. Hey, bar, my motor's gone loco. Oh, that birdhouse. My prize orchid. No, not the memoirs. Don't even think about it. Not gonna happen. Whoa, man. Whoa, nothing. I'm gonna do something your daddy should have done a long time ago. Now go home and think about what you've done, young man. Required reading with Stella and Tom. That's the proper title, mind you. A podcast that's brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Now, normally, this podcast is about books and literature, and each month we only choose one book to thoroughly examine and determine whether it's worth its weight in salt. But this time, we're doing something special. Tom, what are we doing? 
this is something we're going to try about every 10th episode is a tangent specialist, we're calling it, where we, instead of taking a uh, a book that one of us has chosen for both of us to read, we're going to take a, pick up a special topic that we want to explore. Uh, it might be a genre of literature. It might be a particular theme. It might be something that is even tangential to literature and, and in the broader spectrum of, of, of culture, popular culture. And uh, we'll spend some time looking at what that particular thing is uh, and specific works of literature or books that we love or that we would recommend within that uh, within that specific topic. And uh, this time around, we are going to be talking about the sort of life stories genre uh, with the with biographies, autobiographies and memoirs. How are you doing, though? Before we oh, I'm, I'm okay. I, I was a little melancholy a couple of days ago, but I'm, I'm getting better. Yeah. You're getting all geared up for uh, Comic-Con? I am. I was even working today in the library coming up with questions for some of the comic creators that I know I'm going to interview. So that always gets me uh, pumped and, yeah, excited to go. And here's hoping that <laughs> this year will be <laughs> a little better than last year. Yeah, yeah. I feel bad for you last year with having to endure the whole killing joke media oh, yes. and then the, the new direction for the the Batgirl book and stuff. Um, I did think it was a great episode, though. Oh, thank you. As it normally is, but it, it's I always I always really do enjoy your uh, your San Diego Comic Con coverage, especially since I really uh, rarely, if ever, even have an outside shot of going. So mm, yeah. Well, so, thank you. Hey, no problem. I will be, while you're in San Diego, I'm going to be in Williamsburg, Virginia, on the campus of William & Mary, taking an AP, doing an AP workshop, because I'm teaching AP literature in um, in the fall. So I have to learn all about the AP exam and, and how to, and just the ins and outs of teaching and, and structuring that course. So that'll be pretty interesting. Uh, first of all, I don't even know they were thinking hiring you, but nonetheless, it's already the contracts in the mail. You signed it, so there you go. I will. <laughs> and here I'm thinking, and, and just the other day, I'm walking Uh-oh. into Harris Teeter, oh, no. and I'm thinking, you know, maybe, maybe like where I'm going to be teaching has like a Latin program or something, and maybe if a job comes open, I'll send it Stella's way, and we could actually teach together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I, I take it back. It's okay. I will say, though, that I went to one of these conferences, and I do not like school meetings. They're the bane of my existence. Yeah, me too. I hate in-surface. And you kind of sit there in this, you know, conference for, you know, eight to five, you get some breaks and everything uh-huh. like that. But it was the most worthwhile thing I have ever experienced. Cool. And it really helped me out a great deal. So I hope uh, you get a lot out of it like I did. And, and I hope it was, is every bit as worthwhile as my AP Latin conference was. Cool. Thanks. I, I'm, I'm look, actually looking forward to it. I'm hoping it's as useful as some of the... Uh yearbook workshops that I had to go mm-hmm. to over the years were, because those were always, I mean, I'm another person who just, if it's not something I'm interested in professional development wise, I'm just like, like a little kid who's being dragged to, you know, somewhere I don't want to go wearing, you know, a tie that I'm constantly pulling at my collar. I'm like, ugh, ugh. so, um, you know, very immature at the age of 40, but no, I'm looking forward to this. And, uh, so yeah, so, and, um, 
Heads up, Professor Allen, I'm teaching British literature next year. So, yeah. Uh, As well as uh, some classic world lit, including the Odyssey, which I'm very pumped to teach. (gasps) You know what this means? What? We really could do an Odyssey, a Homer, Ulysses side by side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was something. that Kimberly Rockmore had an email last episode, and the question was, was there ever a book that you, like, never got through? I think just more or less that you that you started reading and you gave up on. And uh, I was racking my brain to come up with some. And at that point, we'd been on the air for, you know, a couple of hours, and I know both of us were just fried. Because to pull back the curtain, it was the day before the last day of the school year uh, for me. And then you were, I think you were done, but you were in the middle of that in-service week or something. Yeah. And so we were both exhausted, and I couldn't think of it. And the one book that I tried and got about maybe two or three chapters in and just gave up was Ulysses by James Joyce. In fact, my friend Dan, who teaches up in, uh, we used to teach together, and now he lives up in Pennsylvania and teaches up there had sent me his copy along with a uh, like another book that was like a reading guide to Ulysses. And I seriously barely got through the book. It was collecting dust on my table, on my, on my uh, dresser. So I put it in a box and mailed it back to him with a note on the book saying, I'm sorry, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. So we could very well do that if we wanted to. Um, I taught the Odyssey my very first year as a teacher, and it uh, and and I really really love it. So I'm looking forward to this. So I'm also going to be teaching uh, that play that I don't like. So we'll see how that goes. But I hope you play the friar. Yeah, he had one job. One job. Why don't you do a how you should how it should have ended? <laughs> Probably could, be, could do that. That could be, be a really fun, fun assignment. assignment. Get the yeah. students to create a how it should yeah. have ended and have their own yeah. like different take on Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. We had fun with uh, Midsummer Night's Dream a couple years ago where what we did was um, I taught it because we went to see a performance at the Blackfriars and uh, that was amazing. And um, uh, I had them take a Midsummer Night's Dream and take like one part of a scene, but they had to set it in an entirely different genre like a different movie genre. So you had people doing like a slasher movie and a teen comedy and like all these different things. Cause we had talked about um, like, she's the man and 10 things I hate about you and that sort of stuff. And that was a really, really fun assignment to to do. So, um, but we are not (laughs) tangents are already. Yeah. Yeah, It's a tangent episode. Woo. It really is. Uh, but no, we're talking about biography, autobiography, and and memoir. And uh, what we're gonna do is, as I as I already said, but just to refresh a little bit, is talk a little bit about what kind of defines each of those uh, those subgenres. Uh, what makes what makes a good biography? What makes a good autobiography? Uh, what mistakes can the authors of those make? And uh, we're each going to recommend some books that that we've read, and uh, and then towards the end of the show we have some feedback as as we normally do. So um, to lead us into the first part of it is Stella, and uh, and you're going to talk about uh, do a little bit of you're going to lead a discussion about uh, biography. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I I apologize to listeners because the previous episode that I led, I said that I would be every even-numbered episode, and now Tom decided to usurp me, and um, I'm apparently I'm forced into the odds, <laughs> and then I'll come back to the evens, I guess, with 20. Who knows? So I'm a usurper for doing this. I'm yeah. a betrayer because yeah. I, because I, had, I talked to Donovan last night. <gasps> um. What else? <laughs> uh, if you really need Tom, he can also talk you off of a high ledge. So, <laughs> but it, it yeah, comes with comes with uh, comes with time there. Uh, yeah. So yeah, biography. So how would you define a biography, or what sort of elements need to be within a piece of literature to be considered a biography? Um. I have, I've always gone with the basic definition that I have my students give when we do a brief overview of genres, you know, what do they know, what do they don't, and it's always been the story of somebody's life, but written by somebody other than them, mm. and uh, and not, not ghost-written, you know, not like, you know, the story of my life as told to blah, 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 or somebody they hired to, quote, for them to, quote, write their life story but somebody who actually researched in any way shape or form whether it was through interviews of a person if they're still alive or 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 uh or recently deceased uh or somebody who's from you know two three hundred years ago they've done whatever research academic or journalistic or otherwise to put together this work that's a comprehensive look at their life and that's how i've always defined biography how about you i would also agree with that i wonder when you say the word comprehensive how much you mean like for instance i feel like it it needs to go probably from you know zygote to death but i think there are times where and i'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well where the author might need to go back even farther to see some recent ancestry. Um, and in particular, if it really impacts the way that the person has grown up and if there's references to his great-grandfather but you hadn't mentioned him before, then that would probably be a bad thing. But if this person had such, you know, relationship with his grandfather or had an impact, his grandfather had an impact on him, then it'd be good to start before the parents. So how far would you consider comprehensive? What do you think needs to be included in this person's life? Um, I think that you gave a really good answer there where if the ancestor uh, or previous generation or generations had a either a di very direct impact like they go into the sort of the story of their parents a little bit how they met etc their personalities so that we could see you know how they influenced them but if you go grandfather great-grandfather because there was some sort of direct or maybe second degree away influence either on that person or the family um, it's yeah that, that that definitely is necessary especially if it affects if it has a real effect, um, either personality-wise or maybe circumstantial, mm -hmm. that the reason this person grew up where they did was because, I don't know, their great-grandfather came over on the boat 
you know, so right. many decades ago, or somebody they were they were born into a certain fortune that was mm-hmm. made, you know, so stuff like that. That there's like a legacy. In fact, mm-hmm. one of the biographies I, I picked definitely has that concept of legacy to it that's necessary in order to to cover even if it's not like really really thorough at least in a cursory manner so that you kind of set the table for the for the person or persons that you're covering in the book what would you say makes a biography worth reading like why should we care about reading biographies um if I'm personally choosing a biography, it's a person who I find interesting or it's a circumstance, event, time, and history that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. I think the latter is a good way to approach it more generally. Like if you're a person who is interest in, uh, interested in a particular content area, because it could be like science, um, it could be history, it could be some sort of other field, and you have this person who's a figure in that field who's known or has a connection to a particular event um it's it's definitely a hook i know that in recent in the last couple of decades there have been very well regarded biographies of uh a couple of the more prominent founding fathers Mm -hmm. uh john adams is one that comes to mind because that got made into an hbo miniseries and there is a biography of alexander hamilton that's been out over the last couple of years it came out i don't know if it came out in the last year or the last couple of years that is uh also pretty well acclaimed too well that's what spurred on or hamilton yeah okay by lin-manuel miranda, miranda. so uh that <laughs> yeah. it's a little older than just a couple of years right then, yeah but yeah. but i know that you know so and and even that is like, if you like this, go read the source material type of stuff. So there's definitely different ways you can hook it, somebody into a bio. Yeah, I think, the pr- I would hope anyways, and this is where it gets hard because it's our idea of, you know, one person's belief may be another person's belief, but I, I do think it should be someone who has had some sort of impact either on culture or society or um, history in general. And... You know, there's a reason because I think, you know, when I was being taught to write an essay, you sort of always have in your essay writing the what's the point or why should I care situation, (laughs) you know, when when you're trying to prove your points and everything. And I think to a certain extent, biographies should be like, why why should I care about this particular person? What does he mean to either his country or her country or just the circumstances and, and everything? Uh, but then it gets hard because I'm sure there, you know, for example, I wouldn't necessarily say that Kim Kardashian, you know, might deserve. I don't know if she really deserves a biography. I don't know if she has one, but she's someone who's very much in the limelight. And so you wonder, well, how, how is she different than, say, you know, someone from, well, which uh, someone just wrote his own autobiography, which I know we're not talking about that right now. Um, Alec Baldwin just wrote, you know, I guess mm-hmm. it was more of a memoir. So, I mean, if Kim Kardashian doesn't deserve one, why would, you know, Alec Baldwin deserve one? Yeah. So I think to a certain extent it's 
it's going to be opinion based. But I'm hope mm-hmm. I think the ones that are worth reading are ones that have some sort of impact. And if, if they grew up in the 17th century, they haven't died there. Their name lives on, and they've had impacts on whatever is is going on currently. Um, that that's what I would hope. Uh, you, what would make it readable to me is I think like what you said is someone that I care about or I have an interest in or the time period, and I think uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not true of the one that I read. So <laughs> I, I do suggest that because biographies, if done well, and the person has lived a while, they're going to be quite long and thorough, and unless yes. you um, are very engaged. You need to care about that person in order to make it through. Yeah, and, and the the ones that I had on my list were all directly connected to specific either times in history, like periods of history, or mm-hmm. specific historical events. Um, so they definitely are noteworthy in that they actually had an impact. I mean, there are plenty of celebrity biographies that are written, and they're like, um, in, in fact, there are some that are written so quickly and they come out that they're they're wildly inaccurate and they're almost like um, tabloid trash mm. type of stuff. Like, you know, somebody like a Kardashian or back in the 80s, I know there was at least one, maybe more than one unauthorized biography of uh, Madonna Uh, or somebody like that. And it's like, you know, are you really getting out of this what you think you will? Or is it just like, is it just kind of a, it's it's almost like the biography equivalent of like a Harlequin romance novel, Mm. you know, the, the sort of trashy stuff that you read, you know, to escape on the beach or something like that. And like, you know, it's, it's one step, up from us magazine or something like that so but i agree with you on on and how like the good ones are people who are worth writing about and worth looking into and the mm-hmm. person who's written them clearly has some sort of uh passion for that subject right um and uh although you can write it about somebody who's still living and just take it up to their current current you know, cur- current age mm-hmm. uh which the which uh, at least a couple of the a couple of the books I've I've read have done that and they're still a full look at their life and they're mm-hmm. still worth writing about so mm-hmm. what so you need a passion to mm-hmm. be the actual biographer yeah but what what other qualities do you think a, a biography need biographer needs to have in order to write it and what are some of the pitfalls that biographies themselves can have and, and that the biographers could fall into? I don't want to say that the biographer has to have certain academic credentials um, in the same way that if you're writing an authoritative book about history or science, you probably should. But that does help, especially if it does involve a lot of academic research into things where you have access to things that, like, um, normal people like you and me might not have. Mm-hmm. You know, access to certain documents, access to certain um, uh, records and things like that. That maybe uh, uh, that maybe a graduate student, a PhD student, or somebody who's a professor working in a university might have more uh, more access to or credential to. Um, I think it certainly helps. I also think it certainly helps to have a a journalistic eye. 
because some of it does involve investigation in some cases, and especially if the person is currently living, it involves interviews. It might involve that sort of research too. So a certain amount of experience, either in journalism or on the sort of a academia side of knowing how to do research and what what is going to um, what is going to be uh, important is definitely definitely helpful. The pitfalls become when I think when the uh, biographer inserts either themselves or their views too much into the biography. Mm. And I'm going to like put inaccuracy aside because I think that just goes without saying that you want to be as accurate as possible. Right. Right. But um, while it's not a biography, uh, a book that does cover somebody's life in a way is uh, Into the Wild by John Krakauer. And he spends it, it this it's ostensibly the story of this guy named Chris McCandless who gave away he was a trust fund kid who gave away all his belongings to um Oxfam, set out on the road and was later found dead in a bus in Alaska, in the Alaskan wilderness. He was like, you know, going on some I'm gonna live on my own, live on the road, and it's a fascinating story. But there are large parts of the book where Krakauer is talking about like his own experiences, and I think it's to show how he related to McCandless. But um, my students and I read it for a couple of years in a row as the summer reading for my 10th grade advanced course, and by and large, we all agreed that that was the stuff that if he had trimmed that down, it would have made it a tighter book, because there were times where Krakauer was kind of getting into his own head, and... We were like, get back to, get back to the main story, get back to what we were here for. Um, so that that's like a really um, explicit example. Um, but a more subtle one would be them allowing their personal views of this person to taint their their telling of their story, either in a way that like um, glorifies them a little too much, puts them on pedestal a little too much, or the opposite that they're there to knock them down. And so that they introduce that sort of prejudice or bias and try to twist things around so that it, it fits their, 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 their view or their political views come, become way too influential in that. And they try to, they try to tell the story from the, the point of view of a liberal or a conservative or a, you know, insert political, religious, cultural viewpoint here. So I say those are some pitfalls that you, you have to watch out for with, with this genre. Do you think an author could potentially make some sort of logical guess as to why uh, his subject did something, but then maybe take a step and say, but we don't know for sure? Do, do they have that right, or do, should they just lay the facts out and and not have any sort of commentary on it? I think commentary and speculation are okay if it's grounded in enough evidence, you know, if there's if there's enough evidence to suggest that this is possibly or probably what the motivation for a certain action is, or you know, uh, etc., that I think is allowable because it, if if the, if the person shows their work, in a sense. Mm -hmm. But if they're making wild claims based on hearsay, rumor, or even just because they just want to, because they're trying to, I don't know, knock this person down or build this person up, then then no. Gotcha. I 
Well, besides passion, I do believe that they at least need to be, <laughs> if they don't have the credentials, they at least need to be a good writer. Because if, you know, your subject isn't motivating for people to read, I think that your language needs to be readable. <laughs> so I will at least say that under credentials, they, they do need to be able to hold some things together. Yeah. I, with the biography that I read, he did have some added credentials in that he studied Russian literature and he actually knew the language of Russian. So in his preface, he said that he was the one who translated all of the the poetry and the letters and things that were in there because he wanted consistency. He didn't want it from different translators, which was nice. But, you know, yeah, you don't necessarily need that. I think that's just an added bonus and it comes with, I think, the, the particular topic. I think once you get farther back in time, you'd probably... <sighs> I, I can see what you're saying about you don't necessarily like need a degree in history. But I just feel like it would be helpful so that you mm -hmm. would understand the circumstances that were going on. Like if I wanted to write about Virgil, which, you know, there's already stuff written about him. But I would, I think, I think it's better that I have the degree that I have yeah. uh, as well as being versed in, in classical culture and things like that. Um, but maybe, you know, with current figures, you might not need it as much. But I, but I think if you're getting into deeper waters where it's talking about heavier things like politics and economics and, and science and things like that, you, you probably should have the know-how and some credentials under there. But, I mean, a layman could potentially write a biography, but they need to be able to do the research. Uh, as for the pitfalls, I, I totally agree with you. My main thing was just bias. And, and I think <coughs> seeing this person and maybe that person, uh, the biographer has put his or her subject just up on, you know, a pedestal and it's an idol. And so whatever has happened will be reflected in either a positive or negative light. But it, but I, I think that biographies need to be wholly objective, just tell the story as it is. And there were times that I read some sort of um, ideas of, well, this may have happened because of this, but then backpedaling. And so I, I just, I'm not sure about that because clearly you weren't there to witness that situation. You could read between the lines and there is some evidence, but maybe you should just lay it out and, and whatever happened, happened. But I, I think bias is the main pitfall that I, I think of. Yeah, and I think that'll come in with like, especially figures, if I'm thinking recent history, who were like controversial in some way or another, where there's uh where there actually is maybe a more polarized opinion of them. Um, Richard Nixon, for instance, there are people who look at Richard Nixon and see one of the most corrupt presidents we've ever had because of the whole the whole Watergate scandal, the secret bombing of Cambodia through Vietnam, and, and he, they see somebody who they still consider as you know awful as people did right after Watergate was over. And then there are a number of people who don't see anything wrong with him and see him actually as somebody who uh, see him in a more positive light and see him as a flawed person, but don't see him as a villain. And that's where your that's where that bias can come in. And a biography can be like kind of a tricky thing because like what bias, like you should, I mean, you really should be kind of taking that middle road and just kind of pre pre presenting the facts as they are. 
but it's very easy to paint a picture of somebody like a Nixon or somebody like that in either one of those camps, especially um, especially considering the the amount of um, in his case uh, the amount that's already on the record that uh, as far as as far as he was as far as his actions and stuff in his presidency is concerned. So if it's a controversial figure, that bias really gets tricky. Yeah. But he wasn't a crook. At least that's what he said. Ah, <laughs> so. uh, okay. Well, we were supposed to, which looking through this little document that we have, looks like Tom continues to break the rules. We were supposed to have two potentially recommendations per category, or if not, we could have more in one and less than in another. But six total. Tom seems to have like twenty. I don't really know how this is going to go. I <laughs> I, I have pick. I will. <laughs> Pick two. All sure, right. Sure. I, although in biography you've got one and I've got three. Yes, I know. So. Oh well, that's not how you worked it out. You didn't say they need to come up with four. No, 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 no. I didn't say that, but I'm just saying. Oh, you're that just trying to. I'm yourself. just looking to doing the math right here, so yeah, I could sure, use all sure. three that I have. Two is four. One and three is four. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I know so I broken. teach English and not math, but I, I do know what what one plus three is. Oh man. Okay. Well, the volume of a cylinder is pi r squared times h. Anywho, the and, and weight <laughs> equals mass times the velocity of gravity squared. Yes, nine point eight meters per second per second. Yeah, pretty, Anywho, yeah. so I've only I feel like I've only read one biography, and this is tricky because I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> Oh, so this is on my Rory. Actually, all of these, I think, were on my. No, that's not true. But nearly all of them were on my Rory Gilmore reading list. So the first one is Pushkin, a biography by T.J. Binion. Okay, so all of these little uh, descriptions that I have are coming from Amazon.com because I like their little descriptions and they say things better than I would going uh uh uh. So here we go. In the course of his short dramatic life. Alexander Pushkin gave Russia not only its greatest poetry, including the novel and verse Eugene Onegin, but a new literary language. He also gave it a figure of enduring romantic allure, fiery, restless, extravagant, a prodigal gambler and inveterate seducer of women. Yeah. Having forged a dazzling, controversial career that cost him the enmity of one czar and won him the patronage of another, he died at the age of 38, following a duel with a French officer who was paying unscrupulous attention to his wife. Hey, sounds like Hamilton. In this magnificent prize-winning Pushkin, T.J. Binion lifts the veil of the iconic poet's myth to reveal the complexity and pathos of his life while brilliantly evoking Russia in all its 19th century splendor. Combining exemplary scholarship with the pace and detail of a great novel, Pushkin elevates biography to a work of art. Well, I will say, well, first of all, I, I went to see Anastasia on Broadway last week. Mm -hmm. Which will be, I guess it'll be last month, technically, when people listen to this. But at one point, they're in, well, they're in France, and this club owner says something like, uh, it's like all the Russian poets say, or it's like what the Russian poets said. And then people are saying, which Russian poet? Pushkin? Blah, blah. And they're like, all these Russian poets. And it was funny, because then she said, all of them. So apparently, there are a lot of Russian poets. I will first say that I had no idea who Pushkin was. I assumed he was Russian. But that is where my knowledge on him 
left me or lied or that's all I had of him. I had written or read other Russian people, but this was, I had no idea. So uh, I would say maybe that's not the best way to get introduced to someone through their biography. Maybe their works would actually be the better way, but it was on my reading list. There was no way around it. It was a solid work for the actual biography. It starts before his parents. So there was my idea of, you know, sort of, recent ancestry they even had a nice little family tree and everything which comes back into play throughout so it made sense uh but this guy <laughs> was very interesting let me just say that he did his best work and he completed the most of his work while laid up in bed with venereal diseases so you know he would have like a spur of work come out, you know, at the same time that he's laid up. He was a pretty interesting guy, um, so I didn't really care for him as a person. I sh Maybe it would be interesting to read actually one of his poems, some of his sort of zingers or what were those things called? Like, I know of a man from Nantucket. Limericks? Yes, Limericks. He, he, I don't think they're technically called those, but he had some of those and they're like super dirty and using language that I didn't even think existed back then. But uh, yeah, so it was really well written. It was really <clears throat> thorough. But this comes into play wh where Tom and I were talking about you probably need to have a desire to know about this person or you already know about them and you want to learn more because I didn't know anything and once I started reading I was like oh dear I've got to get through all this so that's my quote recommendation end all quote right. <laughs> alright I'm going to actually I'm just going to pick two and I'm going to go into detail about wow. one and uh, the other one I just want to mention but, the, mm -hmm. but I am going to pick one that actually matches up really well with this mm -hmm. and segues very nicely because the title of the book is The Family Romanoff and it's by Candace Fleming um, I, I read this book because I took a class last fall about young adult literature and um, one of the coolest things of that class is that we had to read one selection from 14 different genres over the course of the semester so I read dystopian science fiction I read um, like memoir I read uh, biography books about science math etc and uh, so this was a this was a pretty well acclaimed young adult geared biography of uh, Czar Nicholas and his wife Alexandra who were the parents of Anastasia yeah so um, they were the last uh, they were the last of the Romanovs the last of the Tsarist dynasty is that live that ruled Russia for centuries and centuries and centuries and they were overthrown by the uh, by Lenin and the, and the Bolsheviks in 1917 and eventually uh, executed brutally executed in, in the wilderness of, of, uh, of Russia and um, what Fleming does is for a book that is geared toward a young adult audience it is very well researched and uh very well written um uh, reads very very quickly but she does she does go back a couple of generations to really set the stage for who nicholas was and who alexandra was and and you know how he you know how he felt about you know his power and 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 you know being part of this long bloodline and the other interesting thing i found interesting was that they had one son who because of generations of inbreeding mm -hmm. was a hemophiliac mm -hmm. 
Um, and it was something that I brought up uh, last semester when my students were studying Oedipus. And one of the questions that they always have is, you know, how you talk about Antigone and um, oh, what's his other daughter's name? I think it's like Esmini or something. Uh, why aren't why isn't there anything wrong with them? Because they are the product of this, you know, is him and his mother. And um, and I and we talked about and, and I I even asked them and there and a few of them who actually paid attention to biology class because they're sophomores have said, well, it takes a number of generations for um, the uh, for the defects to really show. And I mentioned the uh, the, the Romanovs and how hemophilia. Um, and, and it wasn't the only royal bloodline that was like that, where hemophilia was a sign of this sort of genetic breakdown. And then there's, um, I believe it's the Habsburgs who ruled Spain, and the last of the Habsburg line was so incredibly inbred that um, he was just, there just so many genetic disorders because of just generations and generations of intermarriage. Um, that was that was interesting to me. But what was interesting to me was that like I'm not used. To, I, I had never really read much about the Romanovs aside from what I knew from the Rev- Russian Revolution. So basically, came in at their deaths and uh, the longtime urban legend surrounding Anastasia. And um, whether or not, you know, that she was supposedly survived and there were people for years claiming to be her. And um, the controversy over where they're actually buried uh, and what the Russian Soviet and then Russian government, you know, what they would or would not acknowledge where they were actually buried, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, this is a really, really good story. And it's 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 a little dramatic in places where she's obviously trying to write for her audience a little too much. I say that was probably the one criticism I have of it. Um, So she's trying to kind of up the drama a little bit. But one of the things I really appreciated, too, was how she really gets into how detached this royal family was from the people who they were ruling. Like how how they really didn't understand what the workers were going through, what the peasants were going through, and how they were just isolated, cut off from the world, and they were in their little enclave. And it this it essentially led that and and the the their their efforts to go into the great war and their relative unpreparedness for the great war really led to their eventual downfall and uh it is a great it's a really really good good uh biography the family romanoff by candace fleming I, i do recommend it it's a very quick read too um just honorable mention because it's a book that i started recently and I am uh, about 160, 170 pages into it. It's a 1,200-page biography oh, dear. of Robert Moses uh, called The Power Broker. And it's by Robert Caro. And Caro is known for comprehensive, thorough biographies. He has a multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson that he's been publishing for uh, at least a decade or two now. Uh, that my friend has supposedly read, but Robert Moses, if you're unfamiliar with him, uh, was the New York State's Par- New York State Parks Commissioner and had other roles in the New York State government through much of the 20th century, and he more or less shaped New York. He built the highways, he built the parks. He's the reason that there are you know tunnel like the Lincoln Tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, and and some of the tunnels and things, and why you have certain roads uh, was known for, and and is either in some cases uh, a visionary and and a great master builder, 
or he's a villain because of the way he bulldozed through poor neighborhoods and put up housing projects and things like that. And so this is a this is a really noteworthy biography. It was published in the I want to say like the early seventies or the mid seventies of Moses and it's called Robert Moses in the Fall of New York. And it was just basically how it built up and how he eventually, you know, had his downfall. And uh, it's it's one that is, is looked at as one of kind of the benchmark biographies of the, of the late 20th century. And I've had it on my shelf for years. And uh, a few a couple of weeks ago, I was bragging about how I was ahead of you on Goodreads. And I haven't checked it lately. Um, and then you were just like, call me when you you said something really snarky on the long lines called me when you read like an 800 page biography or something well yeah because you were touting that you were ahead of me by however many books yeah it was like and i said books. well you know when you start reading books that are 500 to 800 pages long then you can talk to me because those were and, slowing me down and you know what challenge accepted 1200 <laughs> pages i'll let you know okay when I'm, I'm doing about a chapter a night we'll see how these things go so and I'm I'm reading other things in between it. So, but yeah. So the Power Broker by Robert Caro. It's it is a monster of a book, um, and and you really have to be as into New York City history, especially the history of New York City in the 20th century, as I am, to to really really want to read it. But but yeah. So that's biography. Um, should we move on to autobiography and memoir? Sure. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm going to be tackling this, and I have the same question that we started. Um, I have basically two questions that, that I'm going to combine into one. How do we define this genre of autobiography, and what is the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? I think simplistically, an autobiography is the story of the writer's life. So the person writing has to be writing about him or herself. And we talked about this, I think, over... Uh, I think I had an omelet, and I think you might have had so. a waffle of some sort. Mm-hmm. We, and we talk about it over breakfast. <laughs> we did. And I feel like an autobiography captures the beginning to the end of a person's life, uh, whether that beginning is from the zygote or if it's uh, recent ancestry is sort of similar to the biography, I think, but a memoir is more of an in-depth, even more in-depth look at a certain moment or moments in time. It doesn't necessarily encapsulate the entire author's life. Okay. I think that was exactly what I had written down, and then I wrote I wrote down um, how the autobiography does encompass an entire life. It may not run chronologically. They may... You know, they may have a framing device. They may start at a certain point, go back, circle around, you know, or whatever. They may play with the narrative, and I don't think it's a requirement. The narrative has to be exactly chronological birth to death as long as it's all in there. Um, Some books that are considered autobiographies also have this sort of, like, they're also almost like their own personal works of philosophy as well. Like, their beliefs, their, their, uh their statement on the state of the world and things. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because uh, I'd say three of the most famous autobiographies um, 
from history uh, that I that first come to mind, like the three that popped into my head when I was trying to think of just famous autobiographies. None of which, I, neither of these, none of these, I've actually read. The first one I probably will because it's it's upstairs in my in my office. Um, it's it's my wife's copy. Is uh, the narrative of a life of, of a slave by uh, Frederick Douglass, which is uh, it's required reading in a number of I know American history courses and those sorts of things. Um, the other two, though, uh, 20th Century One, the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I have not read and I would like to read, and I want to say that also has a lot of his own. Like his belief system and his structure and things, like in his sort of, you know, this is what we need to do in order to progress as a society. Like those sorts of, those sorts of feelings. In addition to this, was the life that I that I wrote that I led, and the third one, which I never will read, but I think is probably one of the most famous, or let's say infamous, bi- autobiographies, works of autobiography out there, is uh, Mein Kampf. Which is also a particular villain of history's philosophical treaties on, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, is that is it passable? Would you consider those autobiographies, even though there's also a kind of like a philosophical bent within them? What do you consider a manifesto then? Ooh, that's a good question. I, because I feel like the manifesto. Those are the ones that get into like something like you're really trying to push some sort of agenda towards somebody. That's true, um, but when I think manifesto, I think of uh, Marx, and the Communist Manifesto is straight up like it, it, a the Communist Manifesto is incredibly thin, um, and, and granted, it's been twenty. Two twenty-three years since I had to read it for for philosophy class, but um, but it's incredibly thin. But it, it it is literally like here's are all the ideas and I'm laying them out. So it's not like his uh, life story combined with it. So maybe this is maybe like works like Mein Kampf and the autobiography of Malcolm X are a combination of those two genres where it's part autobiography but it's also part manifesto. I see. Um, so what do I think about, is it okay that they have? Is it, yeah, do you think it's okay? Does it still fit within the genre if, if it has that sort of manifesto aspect to it? I don't, I, I guess I, I don't really want someone, <laughs> this is sort of want and what's actually happening, but I don't want them pushing their agenda on me. And I, I, I wonder, can an autobiography not also be unbiased as much as it can like this is what happened to me in my life mm-hmm. why, why does there need to be some sort of extra layer of you know look at all these things which I know there are those you know I'm sure there'll be some sort of things coming out soon probably <laughs> but uh. I don't know if it's I don't think it's necessary um, I don't know if it adds anything yeah although I maybe it depends on who's writing it or, or what their purpose was, because in the case of in the case of Adolf Hitler, he's the leader or the symbolic leader of a particular movement at that time, and he's writing this as both 
my story, because Mein Kampf literally means my struggle, mm-hmm. and also a piece of well-crafted propaganda, you know? Yeah. And some other works are very much like that, where it's, you know, this is this is what we need, you know, this, this, so that's, there, there's, there's that. So I tend to take it on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. So um, I did have a sub-question that I just I want to touch on a little bit, which is the sort of autobiographical essay collection um, that doesn't seem to wholly fit in either genre, uh, such as um, I'm going to bring up two authors who I've read quite a bit of, David Sedaris, mm-hmm. who has put out several books, and they're autobiographical, but they're a collection of essays that sometimes connect to each other, but very often don't. Mm-hmm. And don't tell a through narrative. So it's just a bunch of personal essays. And another person who wrote quite a number of those was uh, one of my favorite writers of all time, E.B. White, who also would put out collections of essays that were autobiographical or uh, observations of what was going on in the world and things like that. And But I wouldn't consider them memoirs. Hmm. Because I think memoir implies that you're looking back mm-hmm. a lot and, and thoroughly looking back or looking back on a particular moment. Um, you wouldn't c- consider them those. I don't think I would. I think they have that they have a, a memoir or autobiographical aspect to them, but I think, think they're just simply essay collections. I see. Uh, especially since a lot of them are literally collections of essays that were published elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe with some new material. But couldn't um, you potentially break up my Andrews? Why I know why the cage bird sings into little essays. I think so, and although, I, and I think we talked about this a little bit, how that book is like a bigger is is almost like one part of a the book itself is one part of a larger autobiography. She's got like several books that connect to each other. Um, and I guess those are different essays, but at the same time, they all do connect to each other in, in a kind of a cohesive narrative. But, um, like, White's, uh, one of my favorite books by E.B. White is his essay collection, One Man's Meat, which has an overall connecting theme, but really isn't chronologically, it's almost like the slice of life stuff that, you're seeing what his life is like, but you're not getting a like a like a autobiographical sketch of him um, mm-hmm. unless he unless he needs to use something in different places. And then uh, Sedaris, Sedaris is kind of all over the place. Yeah, uh, I've read two of him. His I've read me talk pretty one day and mm-hmm. um, the winter one. I can't remember what that one's called, but there are holidays couple, on ice. Yeah, but I think there I are a couple that. in there that like are just short stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would recommend. Uh, there's a few essays in Naked uh, that are really the essay about the death of his mother in Naked is outstanding, and it's very powerful. Um, there was an essay he had in the New Yorker. I don't know if it's in any collection recently, a couple of years ago, about the suicide of his sister, and it was really, really powerful. And then I would recommend the book Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, which has some really, really funny uh, funny essays in it. So, 
Um, although, I have a question for. Oh, okay, you go. Go no, go 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 ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just want you mentioned a ghostwriter in regards to biography, and that ghostwriters shouldn't count. I was wondering if you think a ghostwriter could count here. Could someone be ghostwriting an autobiography or co-writing, and that still be counted as an autobiography or memoir? I think on some level, yes, especially if it's co-written. Um, if they were working with the person, ghostwriting, ghostwriting is that odd thing because if it's ghostwriting, the writer is not getting the credit. So if you if you had somebody ghostwrite your biography, autobiography, your name is on the cover as the writer. I see. But if you co-wrote it with somebody, or somebody essentially is telling your story for you, sometimes it'll be the credit of you know. Let's let's say it's uh, unicorns and Batgirl, the Stella story. <laughs> By sure. Stella as yeah. told to Shag. Oh, it's oh, oh. a good person to choose. So, you know, it was, but that as told to, in other words, that you right. know they acknowledge that that person wrote it with you. Mm-hmm. So. Sounds like I'm on my deathbed. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> if if you think you are, please seek professional medical help. Why? Well, okay. <laughs> Side effects may include. Um, what about essays that? This was a sub question, a little bit of a sub question. Um, nonfiction prose that's about a very specific experience that happened to a person, but isn't a story of my life. Like, um, it's like a travelogue or something. Like Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods, mm-hmm. which, if you've, if, if listeners out there, if you've never read A Walk in the Woods, go read A Walk in the Woods. It's a great rather, book. It's rather hilarious. It's really funny. and uh, But it's a very specific thing. Correct. It's happened. It's true life. But I don't e. know T, if that, right? Appalachian Trail. Appalachian yeah. Trail, yeah. And I, I just think that that's more of a travel writing piece. Than mm-hmm. it is, uh, Similar to that one that that woman did, uh, did oh, uh, um, the Pacific Coast Trail. Yes, yes. And I've read it. It's... Um, I, I can see the cover. The cover has a boot on it. It sure does. Why? Why are no? I don't know. Oh, the, oh Reese Witherspoon for... played. Yep, 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 ah. yep. It was also featured on Gilmore Girls because Laurel. I decided to uh, go for this walk. I read it. It's not and... just called the walk, is it? Wild. Wild. Thank you. Cheryl yeah. Strait is the name of the author. I yeah. Think. Just... Thank you. Heavens. Yeah, I, I guess those those skirt the line of memoir, but um, but I think we could probably do an entire that could be its own episode actually of one of these tangent things of travel logs, personal journeys, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Because you've so got, you're saying like, that's not a memoir, but it's in the it, category of memoir. It I think it's uh, it's in the sort of the gray area orbiting around memoir, the sort of, you know, mm-hmm. on the cusp where there's elements of memoir, but it really is more of a, uh, it, it, it's more of, it's, it's very specific to travel. Like it, it's, it's almost like a travel memoir or it's something where it, it, it it's a mishmash of a couple of different genres. Mm-hmm. 
So, because we could do a whole episode on that. I, I have like written down on my list where I was just trying to think of ones that I'd read. A Walk in the Woods, uh, William Least Heat Moon's Blue Highways, which is excellent. Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie in Search of America. Uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. On the road. Um, on the road. Um, yes, on the road. Uh, so, what makes a memoir or an autobiography worth reading, especially if the memoir or autobiography is written by somebody who is not notable? I think then the subject matter or that person's okay. life has to be engaging or you have to meet them where they are or perhaps that writing or work meets you where you are. Okay. So... I'm, uh, I'm not sure if I relate to uh, any of those particular people there that I'm thinking of, but you know, I'm trying to think here of is, is there a good? Um, well, for instance, if if I was having uh, the struggles that the the woman did with Wild, mm-hmm. um, then I think being on that sort of journey and using the hiking to sort of get over um, the difficulties that I had because I think her mother had just died of cancer mm-hmm. and she was having trouble with maybe a boyfriend. I can't remember. I only saw the movie. She, I didn't read it. She was um, she's also a heroin addict. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I can't relate on that level, I'm afraid. But, you know, going through like everyone had life is is crap. And it's, you know, it's pretty messy. <laughs> so I think you could, she can meet you where you are, you know, be like, well, you know, I, I don't necessarily have this one-to-one direct relationship with it, but, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with whatever, and, and I also enjoy the outdoors. So it's something like that I think can be interesting. But, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's, I think, hard to potentially, you know, if you're growing up in the slums and you decide to read something about Mr. Trump and how he, you know, rags to riches i don't know if he was ever in the rags but you know his life it, it, i don't know if that's going to necessarily resound with you on a on a um a personal level so i, I think it, it's gotta meet you somehow i i think that's besides being engaging because there can be really funny things like um who are we just talking about bill bryson um, no the other guy me talk pretty David Sedaris. Oh, David Sedaris. I don't necessarily like his. He's pretty funny, but there are also things I was like, you know, about. Um, but I didn't necessarily agree with many things that he had to say. But he's a good writer, and he's rather humorous. So that's what it was more engagement level and enjoyment level that I got out of that rather than meeting him there. So I think it's just enjoying it, or are you able to somehow? Um, is their life story somehow like reflecting some part of your life story? Yeah, I think I think that's I think both of those are they're excellent and 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 I will say that style is like really really important. Like you know the the hook might be the connection you have to a particular story, or um, if it is somebody famous, like the fact that you're interested in that famous person or notable person. But if it's if it's but you have to take it beyond the hook because you're in for what 200 300 pages so if the, if the style is just really dense or it's just something that is just not hooking you in then 
you know, beyond the subject matter and beyond the way you can relate to it, it's it's not going to be worth reading. Mm-hmm. And there are a ton of celebrity memoirs out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they celebrities have been writing their memoirs for for decades. <laughs> and uh, I've read a few here and there. I've read Tina Fey's. I read Kathy Griffin's because my wife had it, and it was fairly interesting. Uh, you have people. I mean, Jenna Jameson wrote a memoir a number of years ago. Uh, you've had bands like um, Motley Crue, Aerosmith. You've had a uh, shout-out to Rob Kelly. Bob Dylan mm. has written at least one part of his autobiography. Um, I recently read My, My Dylan, uh, which is uh, the book Born to Run by none other than the boss himself, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and these are people that, you know, that, that somebody's going to find interesting, but I've read, like, I read a, I read a book, uh, that an actress who was a teen actress in the eighties put out and it wasn't particularly like, I hate to be like, Oh, it was a terribly written book, but it wasn't particularly like I got through it, but I was just like, "Ah, it wasn't as engaging as I thought it was going to be, you know? So to me, that sort of that hook, that narrative that that's really got to be strong. For me to want to read your, uh, rate your autobiography as, as, as good. Um, and that one that I was just talking about, it felt like what I thought was the downfall was just, it felt like she was trying to cram like every little thing in to make sure she didn't leave out any details and the narrative actually suffered for it. Um, which brings my kind of question up next. What mistakes can a writer make or, uh, you know, in an autobiography or a memoir? Maybe assume <laughs> that the reader cares a lot. Um, and so maybe you have to put the caring factor at like medium so that you don't delve into like, you know, in this month in June, I had two poops a day. Because, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I think there's some details that they might get a little too detail-oriented. Mm-hmm. And uh, assuming that the reader wants to know every little bit. And I think you just have to assume that there might be casual readers or people who actually, they, they do care for you, but they don't want to know that level of your life. I think that's right. I think that was one of the things that I've seen in a couple of things where it's like, you felt the pressure to make sure that everything was accurate and everything was accounted for and it got in the way of the story you were telling. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wonder, uh, like one of the kind of my litmus test is what does it take for you to lose the trust of your audience? You know, cause when you're writing a novel, the audience has to suspend disbelief. And we're talking about fiction. When you're writing a memoir, there's a certain amount of trust, or autobiography, there's a certain amount of trust the audience is placing in you into A, tell a good story, but B, also tell a story that accurately reflects things, um, either as they happen or as you remember them happening. So there might be some slight inaccuracy of an event that you remember that maybe somebody else uh, remembers differently and 
if you ever want to see like how possible it is for you to accurately remember something or like how that hard that is, go listen to the very first episode of Serial. Because <laughs> that's like her like little test at the beginning of like, you know, do you remember what you did a couple of weeks ago? And it's like really interesting of how like you actually don't remember what you did. Mm-hmm. And um, so some celebrities will come out and some famous people, even some people who are not famous, but they are they are have an interesting enough life to write a story of their life will write what they remember and it's not 100% accurate because of the way they perceived events happening and stuff. And in the case of, you know, I've brought up a million little pieces before where like he flat out fabricated portions of that book. And that's the big difference. Which, who did you say? A Million Little Pieces, which is Stephen Fry, I think was the okay. name of the author. Yeah, I was thinking about... I brought it up before. Uh, it was something Cups of Tea was the author. Yes! You brought that up one. Where, oh, you know, man. There's a difference of, like, I perceive the event happening this way, and there's a difference between that and I'm just making crap up. But we don't ever know. That's the yeah. issue. Is that you're reading it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing what this man did. And you just believe it. Like, they really have you. I, I don't know if, unless you were an expert or you had lived that, you're just going along with it. Like, you, there's no way, there's no frame of reference for you until it comes out later. And then you're like, oh my gosh, like, I, I just really enjoyed that for nothing, basically. So I don't even know how, you're asking a question about a trust, and I think you have to put your trust into that no matter what. And so it's like you're giving your soul to the devil and he can do with it what he wants because it's either true or it's not. And you have no idea until it's revealed in some other way, whether you are a dupe or not. That's true. That's true. And that was the case with at least a million little pieces, the the website, the smoking gun, um, which I don't know if they're around anymore or not, but they found like they started diving into some of the things he claimed and they exposed the whole thing like as a lie. And that a pissed off a lot of readers, but it pissed off the probably one of the one, probably one of the people in entertainment you do not want to be on the bad side of Oprah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you you really don't piss off Oprah and live to tell the tale, and um, and yeah, and and he had to go crawling on her show, and she just like, I remember I I remember that because I remember we DVR'd the episode because we were just like I want to see this. It was a it was a train wreck. Um, any but anyway, um, so yeah, it's interesting how the lines between. This, these two genres and then kind of things that are on that sort of periphery can blur from time to time. Especially the memoir genre and that sort of peripheral essay thing, which has become a lot bigger than it used to be in uh, in, in the last maybe 15, 20 years. So it's not like an entirely new genre. Um, there was a while where like the addiction memoir was pretty big. And they kind of gravitated even toward like the self-help type of thing. We're like, you know, this is how I got better and this is what you can do for yourself, that type of thing as well. Um, but we do have recommendations. 
in both We do, ways. yes. We do. And we have recommendations in autobiography, and we have recommendations in memoir. And so let's start off with autobiography, and uh, I will, uh, I'll let you go first. No, uh, well, you I don't have one like in... that. Because, okay. well, I, yeah, I went first before, is it because right, I only first. have one? Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one of the ones I put on here, and uh, no, I'll start I'll start with something. Did I make you feel bad because I said you had 20 recommendations? No, because because the memoir list is a lot bigger. <laughs> and um, I will I will go with um, I have I have a couple that I already mentioned the, the Springsteen one that I read, which which is which is long, and and if you're familiar, you're a fan of the Boss is is worth reading. I'm going to go with a book that, um, that is by, uh, it is a, it is a past actor's memoir. Uh, and the name of the book is you look like that girl. And the author is Lisa Jacob, who is not anybody particularly famous, but she's actually a local author here. Uh, she lives in Charlottesville, but she's not born and raised in Charlottesville. She was originally Canadian and she's an actress whose most notable role is as Lydia, the oldest daughter in the movie, Mrs. Doubtfire. And uh, she also was in Independence Day. And uh, the book is about her, you know, upbringing and then her career as an actress. And then on the flip side, the sort of second half of it or intertwined with it is this post-acting career, uh, struggles with anxiety and depression. And she's actually writing another book about anxiety and depression that's going to be out soon. And... um, the sort of reaction she gets from people who run into her and are, and are use the phrase that's the title of the book. You look like that girl because she is, she's roughly my age. She might be about a year or two younger than I am. So she's in her late thirties. And if you see pictures of her, she, you can tell that she, you know, you, you can, you can totally see the, the girl who was in, Mrs. Doubtfire, etc. But um, it's it's ri- it's very witty at parts. It's very honest at parts, and I, I really enjoyed it um, uh, a lot more than I thought I would. I, I I have a signed copy. I didn't get the chance to meet her because I, I, I but I did get a, I did buy a signed copy from uh, from New, New Dominion Bookstop downtown, um, and uh, maybe I will go to the next thing. But uh, you look like that girl by Lisa Jacob, and it's it's a it's a nice little little autobiography that's. Uh, that is um, not going to have like a huge impact on, the, on on the world or anything, but I, I I really enjoyed it because I really enjoyed hearing about somebody's life after they left the spotlight, and also having they left the spotlight and they have had their problems and things, but it doesn't end up with them dead in a trailer in the middle of Oklahoma or something like that. You know, like mm-hmm. it's not a tragedy or anything, um, and. She's uh, a, a blogger uh, and, uh, and and really witty, and um, also which I haven't read, but I do kind of want to read is Mara Wilson, who played the youngest daughter in the movie, um, who is also the star of Matilda, has a book that she pub- that was published uh, within the last year or so, and I've heard really good things about it. I just haven't had a chance to to get it, and I can't remember the title off the top of my head. But So that's mine, but you have you actually have a really, really good one um, that I haven't read, but but I've heard quite uh, quite a bit about. So yeah. why don't you go ahead and tell us? Yeah, so this is called The Story of My Life by Helen Keller, 
and it was first published in 1903, and it's her autobiography, though I guess if you zoom out, you'd think it was a memoir, but I consider this an autobiography because it is up to age 22. She puts it out when she's 22, so literally, uh. you know, that is her life up to that point. Uh, and it's especially talking about her experiences with her teacher, Anne Sullivan, and she actually dedicated, not Anne Sullivan, but Helen Keller dedicated the, the book to Alexander Graham Bell. And it says, to Alexander Graham Bell, who has taught the deaf to speak and enabled the listening ear to hear speech from the Atlantic to the Rockies, I dedicate the story of my life. So, I, you know, I think everyone knows about Helen Keller. Unfortunately, it's probably because of middle school boys making fun of her. Yeah. But... Because that's how, <laughs> that's the no, most often I how I hear her name. But she is an amazing figure. And, you know, I knew that she was deaf and blind, but, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that at one point she did actually have sight and hearing. And then, you know, she got sick and, and all of this and just what she went through. The fact that she learned other languages and Latin and, you know, she's talking about the Latin. Mm. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. But she's learning this with her disabilities is just amazing. And I love her relationship with Ann Sullivan. I love how precocious she was when she was younger she said she used to lock Ann Sullivan in a uh, in a closet and I guess it was a couple hours before her mom unlocked her just things like because she hid the key and you're like how did Helen Keller hide the key but just a lot of fun really interesting and just someone that you can I think really look up to and um, just be like wow you know what an amazing person in history yeah, I I have to pick that up. That that is, she is one of those historical figures that gets boiled down to what you, yeah, Helen Keller jokes made by yep. middle school boys, or um, her portrayal in um, the Miracle Worker, mm. which is the play by I want to say it's William Goldman I think wrote it. I'm not sure who wrote it, but um, but but that play. So she's, yeah, and and I um through reading a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me, which is all about um inaccuracies and fabrications in history textbooks. Uh, he talks about Helen Keller and that's how I found out that she beyond that book, you know, much later into life was an activist and um, you're right. It was just, it's a fascinating figure in, in mm -hmm. history beyond what, you know, you, you go to by default because of, you know, what a lot of people associate with. Cool. Um, as far as memoir goes, uh, each of us has two. Um, well, you've got three, and I've got three. I do have three. And then we also have two that we uh, that we read that we that were on the list that each of us has read. So uh, I'll start us off with with my first one, um, "Running with Scissors" by Augustine Burroughs. Um, and I did I did grab the Amazon description of this. Uh, Running with Sisters is the true story of a boy whose mother, who was a poet with delusions of Anne Sexton, gave him a way to be raised <laughs> by her unorthodox psychiatrist who bore a striking resemblance to Santa Claus. So at the age of 12, Burroughs found himself amidst Victorian squalor living with a doctor's bizarre family and, befri and befriending a pedophile who resided in the backyard shed. The story mm -hmm. of an outlaw childhood where rules were unheard of and the Christmas tree stayed up all year round, where Valium was considered like candy, and if things got a got dull, an electric shock therapy machine could provide entertainment. 
the funny, harrowing, and best-selling account of an ordinary boy's survival under the most extraordinary circumstances. Um, I read this a number of years ago. (laughs) It is insane. It is insane, but it's it's funny too. Okay. It's really funny. He's a very very funny writer. He's got several others. Um, the the second one, which is more about his adult life, is called Dry. And it's essentially about his struggle with like with some subs- with substance abuse, specifically like alcoholism and uh, and and like cocaine and things, but mostly alcoholism. And even that is funny. Um, he he's got he has that sort of he has the same sort of wit that like Sedaris has, but he's he's slightly more on the vulgar side. Um, so it's not it is not a book for children. <laughs> But it's, uh, I remember uh, reading it years a number of years ago, and, and it was finding it really, really funny. But also, like you said, insane at the same time. So what's your first one? I will go with Autobiography of a Face, which I've actually mentioned before on this particular show. It's by Lucy Greeley. This powerful memoir is about the premium we put on beauty and on a woman's face in particular. It took Lucy Greeley 20 years of living with a distorted self-image and more than 30 reconstructive procedures before she could come to terms with her appearance after childhood cancer and surgery that left her jaw disfigured. At age 9, Greeley was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. When she returned to school with a third of her jaw removed, she faced the cruel taunts of classmates. So in this candid memoir, Greeley tells her story of great suffering and remarkable strength without sentimentality and with considerable wit, vividly portraying the pain of peer rejection and the guilty pleasure of wanting to be special. Greeley captures with unique insight what it is like as a child and young adult to be torn between two warring impulses, to feel that more than anything else, we want to be loved for who we are while wishing desperately and secretly to be perfect uh this was originally it grew out of an article that was published in harper's in 1993 and uh it it certainly is a meditation on just the distorting effects of our culture's preoccupation with physical beauty and um wow it it was at time she is very witty it is very good. I mentioned this, I think, with the Glass Menagerie, and just okay. um, I think we had talked about pimples or zits. I think at one point Possibly. we may even and and it's even something that you know we could tie to my so-called life, right? Where mm-hmm. every you feel like everyone's looking at it, but really, probably no one is. It's like your own self-conscious nature. And I sort of I I, I thought about this, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was very witty, and it's also sad. And uh, uh-huh. you can tell with all those surgeries just how not content with herself that she is, and, and sort of the struggles that she goes through. And and I think she uh-huh. does somewhat get content with everything, but I think there's uh, still an internal struggle that goes on. And I know that one of her close friends was Ann Patchett. Who wrote, and I think the book she wrote, Truth and Beauty, was actually about her relationship with Lucy Greeley. So I'm interested because that's actually on my reading list. I'm actually interested in reading that. But overall, it, it was uh, it was great. Even though it's called Autobiography of a Face, it doesn't go through all uh, surgeries, and it does end like her as a young adult, not necessarily as an adult, because I think there were like the end pages were saying how other how many other surgeries that she had. But uh, yeah, it was it was very good. 
Okay. Um, my next one is Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. Uh, Tony Bourdain is uh, currently on CNN uh, with a travel show called Parts Unknown. He also had a very, very good show on the Travel Channel for a number of years called No Reservations. He's done travel, kind of food travel shows. Um, it's kind of a very, very much of the kind of punk type of, of hard mentality. But Kitchen Confidential is really what put him on the map. It's his memoir of his time as a chef. Uh, famously at the uh, at the restaurant Layal, and uh, the book was written at the beginning of that, right around the beginning of the big celebrity chef trend that really started. I want to say the book came out in the late '90s or early 2000s, and was really at the start of that trend where you had people like Emeril Lagasse and Bobby Flay and et cetera, then uh, Mario Batali, uh, uh, kind of rising to prominence, where people who were not food people knew who they were. And uh, this book was part of part his life, his career as a chef, um, his own struggles with, you know, his substance abuse and things like that. But also a tell-all, an insider's look at the restaurant industry and some of the things that chefs and restaurants will do and, and hiring practices and kind of like the dirty insider information that like nobody's supposed to tell you, which is why it's called Kitchen Confidential. Um, there's a sequel to it of sorts that was paired with a, with a Food Network show that he had, which is kind of the prequel show to No Reservations, called The Cook's Tour. And it's actually, if you read them together, it's it's almost like a whole a, a bigger story because you get a little bit more of it. But I would really, really recommend Kitchen Confidential. I, I have it's been a number of years since I read it, but I don't think it's really lost its uh, its punch, and it's a really, really fun read. I like to watch Chopped. I would recommend some of the. I would actually. I would recommend No Reservations, the, his TV show from from the Travel Channel. It's him going to a a, a location in the world and eating the food and meeting people and that sort of thing. It's 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 really really good. But you don't watch so, Chopped. I do watch Chopped. In fact, Brett watches Chopped. Oh okay. So he's really into Chopped lately. Okay. So yeah, I watch I watch Chopped. I watch I watch cooking shows on the PBS Create Channel. That's because we're going to start our own restaurant. Yeah. So I watch Lydia's Italy. I sometimes will watch the Martha Stewart cooking show, America's Test Kitchen. Oh. And and the one show, my favorite show on, on PBS, one of them, Rick Steves Europe. <gasps> I love watching Rick Steves about travels. Him. We did talk about that. But yeah, his Christmas episode is great, too. I have that on DVD. Um, all right, what's your next one? I really loved this one, and it's right up my alley. Talking as fast as I can, from Gilmore Girls to Gilmore Girls and everything in between, by Lauren Graham. <clears throat> so in Talking as Fast as I Can, Lauren Graham hits pause for a moment and looks back on her life, sharing laugh-out-loud stories about growing up, starting out as an actress, and years later sitting in her trailer on the Parenthood set and asking herself, did you um, make it? 
She opens up about the challenges of being single in Hollywood. Strangers were worried about me. That's how long I was single. The time she was asked to audition her butt for a role and her experience being a judge on Project Runway. It's like I had a fashion-induced blackout. In What It Was Like Part 1, Graham sits down for an epic Gilmore Girls marathon and reflects on being cast as the fast-talking Lorelai Gilmore. The essay What It Was Like Part 2 reveals how it felt to pick up the role again nine years later and what doing so has meant to her. Some more things you will learn about Lauren. She once tried to go vegan just to bond with Ellen DeGeneres. She's aware that meeting guys at award shows has its pitfalls. If you're meeting someone for the first time after three hours of hair, makeup, and styling, you've already set the bar too high. And she's a card-carrying REI shopper. My bungee cords now earn points. <laughs> oh, man. This was amazing. This, uh, I think, this is what I'm talking about. You want to have a passion for the subject matter or mm-hmm. you know, like the person or um, just be a fan. So, I mean, Lauren Graham, I really like Gilmore Girls, obviously. So I, I thought this is, this would be great. And it was. I mean, her humor uh, is well translated to writing. And it was great to not only learn about her personally, but also her on the set of Gilmore Girls and her experiences there with Alexis Bledel, who plays Rory and everything. So this was great. But, you know, again, for someone who who loves, uh, I think, Gilmore Girls or the actress that is writing about it. Cool. That's a show I really, I've never watched. I probably should. I think at so. At some point. Some yeah. point soon. No, I've, out of all the, out of all those original, that original batch of WB shows, like, or those late 90s, early 2000s WB shows, that was the only, that was probably the only one, maybe Felicity to a certain extent, <gasps> I was always a little bit curious about, but I never actually watched them. Okay. Um, it's it's hard when you live with three or four other guys, and you're constantly watching sports. Um <laughs> Or Sports Center. Uh, my da, next da, one. Da, da, da. <laughs> my last one before we get to the two that we're going to share that we both read is Teacher Man by Frank McCourt. Uh, Frank McCourt is probably the late Frank McCourt. He died a number of years ago. Uh, is was probably best known for Angela's Ashes, uh, which was uh, his monumental best-selling uh, memoir from the mid '90s. It was made into a film. He had a sequel to that called. Tis, I believe, was it? Um, I've actually never read those. This was given to me because it is, it is a memoir of his adulthood, specifically the time he spent as a teacher in the New York City public school system, teaching students from and various levels. But I, I just vividly remember him teaching uh, the like the vocational tech kids, and he was an English teacher, and he was trying to teach them like Shakespeare and personal stories about like students he he knew and. Um, what I really like about it is that he does the teacher story, the this is the impact the kids had on my life, this is the impact I hope I had on their life, without being like, without treacle, without being really saccharine, or being overly, like, without being like that ticket suit, that, like, with that, 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 oh, that, like, man. bad teacher movie trope or anything. And he's really, really funny. 
And uh, it's actually, if there's a book about teachers that I would recommend to a teacher, it's this book. It's really, somebody gave it to me because it was about teachers, about a teacher. And uh, it's really, really worth the read. I mean, he's an excellent writer. And, um, and the stories ring really, really true. Like, in terms of, like, you know, you can, I'm like, oh, I can totally see that in the kids that I teach. But he doesn't get overly sappy. Um, or anything like that. It doesn't turn into some sort of cheesy, cheesy teacher movie. So, Teacher Man by Frank McCourt. Sounds good. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Um, your last one before we... Yeah, I was going to say you said two and then you did a third. How rude. Well, I thought we'd just do the whole thing. We, we each had three, that, so I thought yeah. I'd just give us each but three. Yeah, I thought yeah. you were just going to do your third and then move on, and I thought... No, 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 this no, no, is no, 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 no. I'm gonna This have you is wrap the up. end of this friendship. Oh. Uh, so my <laughs> my last one is Reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir in books by Ezar Nafisi. Ter- uh, Lolita, the fire of my Lord. Talk about a sketchy novel. Uh, so this is the actual, that was all me. So this is the actual. Yeah, description. I know. Okay. Well, I don't know if other people thought that that was what it was about. That is what a Lolita is about. Every Thursday morning for two years in the Islamic Republic of Iran, Azar Nafisi, a bold and inspired teacher, secretly gathered seven of her most committed female students to read forbidden Western classics. Some came from conservative and religious families. Others were progressive and secular. Some had spent time in jail. They were shy and uncomfortable at first, unaccustomed to being asked to speak their minds. But soon they removed their veils and began to speak more freely. Their stories intertwining with the novels they were reading by Jane Austen, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Henry James, and Vladimir Nabokov. Nabokov. As Islamic morality squads staged arbitrary raids in Tehran, as fundamentalists seized hold of the universities and a blind censor stifled artistic expression, the women in Afisi's living room spoke not only of the books they were reading, but also about themselves, their dreams, and disappointments. Uh, Nafisi's luminous masterwork gives us a rare glimpse from the inside of women's lives in revolutionary Iran. So this ties really well with Persepolis and uh, just getting a glimpse at what it's like to be a woman at that time and to do sort of this, you know, illicit thing, right? And and mm-hmm. it was just amazing how much of a mentor that Nafisi was and tying really their lives seemed to start reflecting, as I guess sometimes book clubs do. And I know there's that one movie about the Jane Austen book club. That sometimes, you know, book clubs and lives start to intertwine with, with what they're reading. But this was, yeah, this was great and, and uh it comes at a good time since we just did several of recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's another one I'll have to put on my list. I've heard about it, and I think I heard about it from you. Probably. I want to say you might have mentioned it on BTO at one point. So, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about the two. But no, that sounds like a really, really good book. And uh, and you're right; it ties really well into the Persepolis. So something that I'll I'll uh, I'll just add to my ever growing list. Um, we have two that we both uh, – that I think I might have mentioned or we both mentioned that we've both read. Um, I know both of us fairly recently read – or I reread one and you read, read – I don't know how long ago you read uh, this first one. But I read it years ago. Uh, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius by Dave Eggers. Uh, Eggers is uh, – I'd say – Douglas Copeland was the novelist who kind of defined, inadvertently defined Generation X. 
Eggers is one of the kind of one of the more pro, uh, one of the prominent writers of Generation X, and uh, this, it's a memoir of his time when he and his sister Beth had to raise their brother after both of their parents tragically passed away. But it's also this look at twenty uh, somethings in the mid nineties, and uh, you know, and and it intermixed with the struggle, like the personal struggles he has, and and some of his uh, his thoughts and things. It's it's witty at times, it's dense and others. I remember really really enjoying it, uh, but it's been a good ten at least 10 years since I read it. So if you've read it more recently than I have, uh, please, uh, please give more insight than the, the, the rambling mess that I just did. Yeah. Well, I think I read it in November. I feel like I recall reading it between parent teacher conferences, which happens in November. So recent, but because of all the other apples that I was reading, that one's sort of fallen out of it. Didn't he work at a punk rock magazine at one point? Sort of a floundering one. Yeah. And I know there's, there's, he knew some of the people from real world. He auditioned for the real oh, world, that's but lost correct. out yeah. to, he, he lost out to Judd Winnick. That guy. Yes. Yeah. yeah uh, oh yeah. In fact, Ah, shoot. Um, I probably should have mentioned Pedro and me. Yeah. Yeah, about his relationship with Pedro and Zamora. Uh, but yeah, no, that, in fact, there's there's a whole part of the book where he talks about auditioning for mm-hmm. the real world. And not only that, how they would watch it and make fun of it, but then they couldn't stop watching it and that sort right. of thing. There, there's a lot of... Um, I remember I might reread it because I remember recognizing things here and there and uh and feeling like it was a time castle but it was also this sort of like it felt like it was a I mean the title alone is bombastic but it felt like it was his shot at the title mm. so to speak like you know yeah. he was putting it all out there and stuff yeah. and he recently I guess he he wrote the circle that was recently made mm-hmm. into a film because I remember yeah. Emma Watson mentioning this particular work how much she loved it um, well I mean the the family itself was pretty dysfunctional I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say um, I remember there being lots of conflict between him and his sister basically of who is you know in charge of the their younger brother <laughs> Christopher, at that, yeah. yeah, at that night. But uh, no, it was interesting, and you know, it's not like it's probably the only person that that has happened to. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but uh, again, you know, sort of a tragic event that is mixed with wit and just well writing. Yeah, our uh, our last one is one that we've both recently read. Uh, you recently read, I reread for like the third time. Um, is it's essentially it is a collection of essays, but they are connected enough that you could really qualify it as a memoir. <gasps> and the book is something, and, and this topic is something we'll probably get into on a later episode of another podcast. But <laughs> I do want to mention it because I love this book. It's called Kick Me. It's by Paul Feig, and Paul Feig is a writer director. Uh, he directed the Ghostbusters remake that everybody seemed to hate, even though I loved it. Um, he directed Bridesmaids. He's directed a couple of other movies. But in my mind, he will always be the creator and co-executive producer with Judd Apatow of the television series Freaks and Geeks. And a lot of the stories he's telling in this book, which is basically growing up as a nerd... Um, 
made their way into episodes and storylines on the show. And it's just, it's hilarious. Um, I, I just really, really love the book. There's a whole chapter on how awful Dodgeball was. Um, how he just could not particularly talk to girls. Uh, there's an entire essay devoted to throwing up in class. Um, and it's, it's very sweet at times. It's really, really hilarious at times. Uh, and I, and I love it as much as I love Freaks and Geeks the show. Stay away from ropes and shampoo bottles. There's an entire, there's a sequel, by the way, to, to Kick Me called Super Stud. Oh. Which is about, really in more specific detail about that. Oh, dear. Yeah. Because he was a, it was basically about how he, um, how he was very unlucky in love for a long time. And there's a lot of references to what he refers to and kick me as the rope feeling, um, and, and things like that. So, uh, but that, that gets a little more dirty. <laughs> I didn't loan you that one cause I didn't want you to be weirded out, but, um, but, uh, but kick me is a really, really funny, uh, funny book. I think I remember you enjoying it, but I did I enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we, we are going to, I am going to ask my usual question at the end of an episode because Stella is picking the book uh, for our next episode. But first we have some feedback. We have a few emails. We have some Facebook comments, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll start us off with the emails. This is from Laura who emailed us uh, last episode about the Of Mice and Men episode. She sent this uh, about the Glass Menagerie and I thought I'd save it for this episode. So where she's talking about the Glass Menagerie. I just finished the second podcast of Required Reading, and I'm continuing to love it so much. I vividly remember reading this one in high school my sophomore year, if I remember correctly. I was immediately drawn into the story in part, but not completely because of Laura. It is hard not to be engaged when a character shares your name. I... Are you okay? I, I, Tom, Tom or Tommy was all the always the bratty kid and everything, so... <laughs> Except for, although I what do about share Rugrats? That... Tommy yeah, Pickles, he's the leader. Yeah, that's not a show I ever really watched. Wasn't so. there a Tom in The Outsiders? I want to say yeah, but Tom and Gatsby is the guy who beats his wife, and um, or no, he beats his mistress, not his wife. Yeah, uh, although there is Tom Jode from The Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, so. I just read that. She also became part of this. Is uh, Laura's email again, Laura? The character from The Glass Menagerie also became part of the long list of fictional Lauras in film, literature, theater, song, and television that are either dead, dying, crazy, and or tragic. A few thoughts post-podcast. One, regarding Laura's affliction. I don't know how easy this could be accomplished on stage, but I wonder if perhaps in her room there could be a full-length mirror. When Laura looks in it, she sees a visibly damaged leg, but the audience does not see it on her actual body. Huh thus illustrating how much it informs her behavior, perspective, and self-esteem. She could even see the reflection of a more frail, plain-looking, visibly broken girl than who she actually is to the outside world. Two, the unicorn stuck with me big time when I read it. It hit me hard. I kept thinking at first when Jim breaks it and she's saying, like, now it's just a horse, it was a momentary transformation from Laura into being a, quote, normal girl. But he takes that normalcy with him as a souvenir. I have to wonder what he what that leaves her with. 
I fear more frail and internal than before. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see the interaction with Jim, especially how it ends being positive uh, for Laura. Three, the discussion you both were having about Laura's affliction, whether anyone else noticed it or it just seemed bigger than everything else to Laura, paraphrasing, but I think you know what I mean, reminded me of something you've already brought up, the Zit episode of My So-Called Life. Tom, I know you've seen the show. I don't know if you have, Stella. Yes, Stella has. Um, because of course. I her my DVDs, Laura. I was waterboarded until I agreed to watch. Laura, Laura's not going to be sympathetic with you. Laura and I go way back on that show, so we <laughs> sure. we have been we are friends because of my so-called okay. life. Yeah. Me and a bunch of other uh, people from a listserv from back in the early two thousands. Uh, for what age grade level do you both think this play is best suited for? And five, yay for the Douglas Copeland reference. I was very into him in the 90s, devouring Generation X, Microsurf's Girlfriend in a Coma, and Shampoo Planet. I do wonder if they would all hold up now, or if they are very much of the time they were written in. I've yet to go back and reread any of them. Um, Do you want to tackle them in order? Oh, the questions? We can, sure. Sure. Uh, I actually really like this idea of... I don't know how it could be accomplished on stage, but the idea that, like, we see what she's seeing, like, her warped perception of herself. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? I actually really like that idea. I think it'd be, I think it'd be interesting cinematically, but I wonder if it's too cinematic to stage. Yeah, because, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure it would be similar to if you've seen The Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. At one point, Christine looks in the mirror and sees sort of this ghastly face in the mirror, mm -hmm. and uh, we can see it, and she can see it, but it's not her. So I, I think it would just have to do with lighting or, or whatever. Okay. Um, so I think it's certainly possible. Uh, you know, in the stage directions, Tennessee Williams, of course, notes that it doesn't necessarily need to be present, the limp, but it's clear that there is something wrong. So I think this is a, a way that uh, you could potentially show that she has a disability without it actually being omnipresent. Mm -hmm. um, regarding the unicorn, I'll, I'll have you answer. Why this. am I answering all these? Because you like the unicorns. I'll take the next one. <laughs> um, and I answered the first one. I just really agree with it. Sure, I thought it was sure a great idea. Uh, it was a momentary transformation to her being a normal girl, but he takes it with him as a souvenir, and she wonders what that leaves her with. What do you think? She, she, her, she says, "I hope I'm wrong," because she's wondering if it's. She's a lot more pessimistic. Yeah, I hope she's wrong too. I think we. Uh, I, I don't mean that in a no, no. <laughs> I know. Way. I, I, I try to look at this optimistically. I think one of my questions was certainly, "Did Tom help? Wait, did Tom hurt? Jim. Wait, his name is Tom. No, okay, man, I was projecting. You know what you did to me? Yes, yeah, thank um, you. You're welcome. Does Jim? hurt more than he helps with the, the things that he does. And I think while he does hurt her to a certain extent because I think he leads her on, whether intentionally or not, because he's engaged, I think it also brings her out a little bit more because she is able to get comfortable in her own skin in his presence and then, of course, he leaves. So I'm hoping, he, I'm hoping that in that breaking and the horse and the normalcy, which I, I'm certainly with you there, and him taking it with her, then maybe she's on a new path, and maybe she's not going to be that unicorn anymore. I'm hoping that she takes this interaction with Jim and moves forward and, and you know, gradually is able to uh, – 
become a little less shy, but it would be sad for everything to change. But we have to also think about her brother. That's Tom, her brother, who leaves, and you kind of wonder what is the the result of all that stuff happening. But I'm I'm on the more optimistic side that I'm hoping that with all of this stuff that it changes Laura for the quote unquote better and that she just changes and is able to um, think more positively of herself. I'm going to go on to questions three and four here where, well, three is not much of a question. It's, it's just a, a reference to the zit in my so-called life, which is is really well done in terms of, of Angela's perception of herself as whether or not she's pretty. Now, first of all, she's Claire Danes, which doesn't make her a dog in any way, but she's got this huge pimple. And when you're a teenager and you're self-conscious, having a pimple that size it always feels bigger than it actually is. You think like everybody's staring at it and you know, she, the character's um, ex best friend is Sharon Chersky. Who's like, you know, pretty and popular and stuff. But I, I think that the idea that, that a flaw that you perceive of yourself is blown up um, from personal experience. I know how that feels of how like you have a flaw, especially a facial flaw. And um, you, you notice it or you perceive it as bigger and bigger and bigger than anybody else does. And, uh, and it, it can really affect your, make you self-conscious and affect your confidence in, in a lot of ways. Um, I like how she made that connection because even though Laura's affliction is much more drastic than a zit, um, there's that sort of relatable level there. And I, I will also make a reference to an episode of the wonder years that is very similar, but it's played up for comedic effect. So the zit keeps getting bigger on Kevin's chin or wherever it is, and they'll cut to like they'll smash cut to like footage of a volcano erupting, and stuff. So they really play it for laughs and stuff like that. But I do like how Williams does have that get to that human, very human feeling of self consciousness because of something that is either is physically wrong with you either literally or just like conceivably and you know what people notice versus what you notice and what you dwell on um as far as an age or grade level uh the copy of the te- of the play that i uh that i grabbed was out of the room of the teacher next door to me who taught it to his 11th grade ap english class so i would put it right in there what about you yeah probably i don't think i would go lower than sophomore yeah um, have you ever read any Douglas Copeland? No. Okay, I have. I have. I I read... I think I read all the ones she mentioned except for Shampoo Planet. Girlfriend in a Coma is one I do want to go back and reread because it's just one of the more science fiction books. I know I read Miss Wyoming and Hey Nostradamus in the 2000s, but I after that I just kind of stopped reading his stuff because it was getting repetitive to me but i was into him in like the late 90s early 2000s the only book by him i still have is generation x i might give it a reread uh to see if it still holds up um i do remember microsurfs being really really good uh and almost being this great satire of like the silicon valley tech uh tech culture of the late 90s and stuff so um but yeah, I'll have to go back and reread Generation X, and I'll let you know uh, what I think of it. Maybe I'll do an episode on that somewhere down the line. Not of this, if not of this one, then of of, 
of my other show. Uh, she says, thanks for a great podcast. I can't wait to listen to more. Laura. Um, our next is from superfan Robert Ward. Would you like to uh, tackle this one? Sure. And okay. in particular, it's regarding Persepolis. It says, Dear Sella and Tom, I'm so terrible. I procrastinated so much. I finally started Persepolis shortly after the start of the month. In fact, I finished the first book the morning of the latest release. It was actually just the day prior. I discovered they made a film and spent the rest of the day moping. <laughs> oh, no. Knowing that while I would hopefully finish the book uh. before your release, I didn't. I knew there was no way I could order and watch the Blu-ray in time. Oh, how things work out. I was vaguely aware of Persepolis, but never had the chance to read it. All I knew was it was about a girl in Iran, and that it, it was it is considered amongst the upper echelon of graphic novels with the likes of Mouse. Frankly, I loved it. I thought the simple design and black and white color usage made a very beautiful and eye-pleasing look that sucked me in. As Stella had stated, Marjan takes full advantage of her medium and created wonderfully artistic panels that I, too, adored. On top of being engrossing and funny, what I found the greatest surprise was how universally relatable the book is. The previous idea of A Girl in Iran couldn't be more alienating. I went in thinking I was going to see something different and what it was like in a faraway world in a faraway time. The 80s! Instead, I found the truth I always knew, but may not have expected to find this time around. No matter where we are in the world, there is little to differentiate between all of us. Many parts of Marjan rings true with American adolescence, and as you stated, a reason this could be so contested is for the fact that it breaks down the misconception of us and them. Marjan was no different than any of us here that grew up in the U.S. and Persepolis is a wonderful reminder of it. Thank you, Stella. Yes, me, for spotlighting it. So as I seethe and self-loathing for not... Re oh, look, some uh, alliteration. For actually, specifically, assonance. No, I'm sorry. No, it's, you're right. It was alliteration. It is alliteration, but with the repetition of S's, it's known as Sybil. Anyways, ah. so as I seethe and self-loathing for not reading Persepolis sooner, look at all those S's, I can't wait to start the follow-up and hope it will be just as poignant and beautiful as the first. Your Scholastic Book Buddy! <sighs> Thanks. I I'm going to add a Facebook comment that Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Strikes and a number of other shows on the TTF network had because it's specifically about Persepolis. And then we'll get to the last email of the uh, of the episode. He said, on the reliability of narrators, specifically this one, you are correct. There are some that can take any... There are some that would take any little inconsistency and throughout the whole book. Uh, we were talking about, like, you know, whether or not... Like, how people react if something is, you know inaccurate and things like that. I think that's what the context of this is. The other extreme is calling anyone who questions the narrator a racist slash sexist slash Islamophobe. Both are extremes and, if I might add, idiotic. Memoirs, in my opinion, get a pass unless there's something glaringly wrong because it adds, as you said, the remembrances of the narrator. Um, and I, 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 I cut and pasted that one and put it after Robert's, uh, Robert's email here. Uh, because it was it matched up, but I also I also do tend to agree with him that, that they're on either extreme. It's just as ridiculous. Like you know, I'm going to throw this whole thing out because there's one glaring inaccuracy. Because I had a bias against this person anyway, so it's just proving my point. Or anybody who slightly disagrees with this is a bigot or something like you know. There's the the, the ground for me is like somewhere in the middle of that, and I also agree with his point that. Unless something is glaringly wrong, like you are literally making things up to make yourself look better, then 
they do get a pass on their full accuracy because it's all perception. What do you? I think we covered. That I mean, yeah, we just talked episode, about it, right? Yeah. And and how are you to know? Quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Unless you're living there at that time. I mean, you have no right to say anything like this is wrong because I, I think you have to give full faith to the author in this circumstance because I am an American and I was not born in the 80s, so I have no idea. So I'm going to fully trust that Marjan Satrapi knows what she's talking about because this is yeah. her life. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely understand that. Yeah. I also like I just to bring it back to Robert's email a little bit, I really liked his point and this is something we were trying to make about the commonality between uh, adolescence in our country and in the book there which takes place in another country and uh and he and his statement a reason this could be so contested is for the fact that it breaks down the misconception of us and them. I just really like really like that point. Um so thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Gene. Uh, we have an email about the War of the Worlds episode from <gasps> Professor Allen, and it's specifically AKA addressed... Prof, prof. prof, Prof, and it's specifically addressed to you. That's because this is my show. Miss Stella, I want to commend you on the fine job that you are doing hosting this fine and literary show. Your intern, Tom, also shows a little bit of potential as a podcaster himself. You must be doing a good job as this podcasting mentor. Prof, Emails like this are not going to get you invited on this show, Alan. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I would replace... It's going to take a lot of quarters to buy your way on this show, Alan. But he, he, he must understand the hard work that we go through. Shortly after your War of the Worlds... Yeah, all that editing you don't do. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, hey! Uh, I wasn't. What do you mean? I did a dubstep. I add musical cues. I think I might do more editing than you, sir. Oh. Shortly after your War of the Worlds episode, the listener to my podcast sent me a package of comics that included Marvel Classic Comics number fourteen, a fifty-page adaptation of War of the Worlds. It was from nineteen seventy-six and was scripted by future superstar. Chris Claremont. Ooh. I have not read the novel in a long time, but based on your description thereof, this adaptation seemed quite faithful. I'm curious if either of you has ever read or even seen this comic before. And apparently it's worth 50 cents, so that's... Well, it's, it's expensive. A, it is expensive with, uh, with Alan, but uh, yeah. yeah, I haven't. Have you? Oh, and he also says, love the show, Stella. Keep up the good work, Professor Alan. Relatively Geeky Podcast Network darkness to light yes uh thank you i'm glad that someone finally understands and appreciates the hard work that goes into this and uh you know it's hard being a mentor um to someone who's really not appreciative of the hard work um so i'm glad that it's shining through but no i haven't <laughs> i have you're just gonna keep sighing so i'm just gonna keep talking um, I haven't read this particular 50-cent comic or 50-page adaptation, though I do really like Chris Claremont, so I'd be interested in, in reading this. Neither have I, and I will see if I can track it down. <laughs> um, and that, that'll that do it. Uh, just just a, a quick note of business, and this will eventually make its way into the uh, postscript that we do. We now have a website... 
and a Twitter feed. Required reading with Tom and Stella.com is up and running. Uh, so you can go to that. And then we have a Twitter feed. It's at Rec Reading Cast. Um, R-E-Q Reading C-A-S-T. And uh, we'll, we post, um, obviously, links to episodes there. Uh, and the occasional thing that whichever one of us happens to be uh, posting on the uh on the on the site if we see a link or something that that's relatable to something we've already covered so um i'll i'll put uh i'll put some links to that on the facebook group and uh and we'll we'll eventually get around to mention it on a regular basis but do go ahead and follow us on twitter and uh and check out the site where right now it's just uh very similar to what we list on the two freaks page but as we get more and more along with the show, we'll probably add some like goodies and extras to each post uh, for your uh, for your enjoyment. So we are going to bring this episode to a close, and that means that our next episode, which is going to air in September, is our next novel or uh-huh. book of some sort. I don't know if it's a novel; it was just my default setting there. And it's a Stella pick, so Stella, please tell us what we will be reading. Yeah, I have two revenge books left for Tom. If you recall, when he made me recall The Wild, I said that I have three revenge books. But today is not a revenge book, so I'm still, I'm holding on to them, though. They will reappear when he makes me angry. So instead, we are going to read a delightful novel, a novel in letters, in fact, called LMNOP by Mark Dunn. Okay. (laughs) Cool. Well, we'll be back in about a month with that. Until then, thank you, as always, for listening. And may your ice cream not fall upon your shoes. You ever watch a little kid eat ice cream? Like my, I just, what is it about kids? <laughs> I have a, my son's gonna be ten, and he just—it's a common thing. This was my problem when I was a kid. They get the ice cream everywhere no. but in their mouth. It's motor skills, man. It's not yeah, developed yet. Yeah, motor skills are going on there. Yeah. I think they're more like determined on the focus like right in front of them and they don't realize that it's like dripping down and everything now i want ice cream and it's 10 to 10 at night anyway 10 to 10 yeah 9 50 uh good night everybody goodbye Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true-freaks. That's two true-freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. 
Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode. story of somebody's life but by written blah, the story of somebody's life i hope you keep that <laughs> okay continue pushkin a biography by tj binion <laughs> got away off those virginia slints pushkin a biography you've by come a long way baby Oh, a, a biography by T. Wait, I need to. A-